Hey guys, this is Mike Estefan from the University of Rochester School of Medicine, bringing you part three of the Emergency Medicine Shelf Exam Review Series. This week I'll be covering some of the high-yield pediatric content for your shelf exam. Before we begin, I just want to put it out there that it's probably pretty obvious to you guys that this is my first time recording anything. That being said, I am constantly looking for ways to improve and to make these episodes more entertaining and more useful for you guys. So, if you have any feedback or have any suggestions, I would love to hear them. Please email me. My email for you guys is empodcastmike at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and without further ado, let's start. So let's talk about febrile seizures. There are two types of febrile seizures. There are simple and complex febrile seizures. On the exam, you need to be able to differentiate between these two because their management is completely different. Simple febrile seizures, which we'll define later, are treated by giving acetaminophen and reassurance to mom or dad. Complex febrile seizures need further workup. Usually on the exam, this means the child needs a lumbar puncture. So let's define what a simple febrile seizure is. So starting with the more obvious things, number one, the patient has to be a kid, typically aged six months through five years. Number two, the kid has to have a fever. It's a febrile seizure. Number three, the seizure has to last less than 15 minutes. Number four, the kid can only have one seizure per 24 hours. So number five is that the child cannot have any focal neuro deficits on exam. And most importantly, number six, the seizure had to have been a generalized seizure, meaning it involved both hemispheres. If the child presented with a seizure that was described as jerking of the right arm, that would be a focal seizure and therefore will be defined as a complex febrile seizure. Just to recap on what defines a simple febrile seizure really quickly. So the patient has to be a kid, they have to have a fever, their seizure has to last less than 15 minutes, they can't have more than one seizure per day, their exam can show no focal neuro deficits, and the seizure had to be a generalized seizure. Now, once you have that definition down, a complex febrile seizure is really easy to define because it's anything that is not a simple febrile seizure. I just have one more point I want to make while we're on this topic, and then we'll move on. So let's say a five-year-old comes into the ED about 30 minutes after a witnessed tonic-clonic seizure, and they're complaining of right arm weakness. What's going on here? Was this actually a seizure? Is this a stroke? This is something called Todd's paralysis, which you probably remember from your pediatrics or your neurology rotation, but it's a focal weakness that occurs after a seizure, and typically it's like a unilateral uh, limb weakness um, that can really mimic a stroke and can be kind of scary to see in real life. So for the last time, simple febrile seizures give Tylenol and reassure the parents. 
for a complex febrile seizure, the kid needs further workup, which on the exam is typically a lumbar puncture. Alright, let's talk about some causes of pediatric belly pain. Let's say a young child presents to the ED after a couple days of bilious emesis with episodic, very severe abdominal pain. When you get to the room, you notice the kid is running around and playing with his toys and the parents are like, oh my gosh, I swear an hour ago he was like dying or something crazy like that, but he looked perfectly okay to you. What do you need to be concerned about? So this is a textbook presentation for something called intussusception. Intussusception, if you remember from your pediatric rotation, is basically when the bowel kind of telescopes over itself and typically presents as very severe abdominal pain that is episodic in nature. So it comes and goes, and when it goes, it completely goes. Like the kid is 100% fine. Um, and so you get these crazy stories where the kid comes in and he's running around the room and looks completely normal and the parents are saying something completely different and then three hours later the kid is in surgery or something crazy like that. And how do you diagnose intussusception? So you diagnose intussusception with an abdominal ultrasound and what you're looking for is a target sign on that ultrasound. I would Google this image if you don't know what it looks like. It's pretty high yield and the image itself can show up on your shelf exam. What is the treatment for intussusception in a stable patient? Good. So the treatment is an air enema. An air enema is better than a contrast enema, both in real life and for exam purposes. However, if you do not see air enema, I would pick contrast enema on the exam. And lastly, the most common causes of intussusception for exam purposes include Meckel's diverticulum and henoch schonlein purpura. I actually had to Google how to pronounce that disease, and not only did I find like six different pronunciations, none of them were the same as how I had been pronouncing it for the past three years. So you'll learn something new every day. So for this next scenario, I'm not going to give the patient's age, but I'm going to tell you up front that this disease is most common in neonates, but also can occur to any kids under the age of five, okay? So let's say a kid comes in with the sudden onset of bilious emesis with severe abdominal pain. The pain has been constant and not episodic, and the kid has actually projectile vomited a couple times. On your physical exam, you note that the kid has a peritonitic abdomen. What do you guys think is going on here? So this is the presentation for malrotation with volvulus. Basically, due to a developmental abnormality, the bowel kind of twists around itself and leads to obstruction and sometimes ischemia. More than half of these cases present during the neonatal period, However, that means half present after the neonatal period, so you really need to keep your eyes out for this one. The keys for this disease are that it is sudden onset, it is very severe abdominal pain, and the pain is constant. It's not episodic. And these kids usually are vomiting like crazy and often have projectile vomiting. So how do you diagnose malrotation with volvulus? 
So you really only want to pursue diagnostics if the patient is stable. So if they're stable, you can order an upper GI series, which can show a couple things, but classic signs for your exam would include a corkscrew sign and a coffee bean sign. Typically the corkscrew sign you see in kids and the coffee bean sign you see in adults because there's two different types of malrotation of ovulus. Actually, there's probably a bunch more that I don't know of. That's why you get different signs. If you don't know what these look like, I would Google search the images because they are totally fair game on your exam. Okay, let's switch it up a little bit and say we have a two-day-old premature baby who's coming in with bilious emesis and some grossly bloody stool. What's going on here? Good. The key here is that the neonate is premature. So this is classic for necrotizing enterocolitis. Now, if you got an x-ray on this kid, what would you see in the bowel? Good. You would see something called pneumatosis intestinalis, which is the fancy doctor word for having air inside the bowel wall. All right, let's say we have another neonate who is in the newborn nursery and they're like two days old and had a healthy birth. They were not premature. However, they did not pass meconium yet. And a couple days later, they start developing abdominal distension and start having some bilious emesis. What is your diagnosis here? So this is classic for Hirschsprung's disease. And if you guys remember from step one, step two, whatever it was, Hirschsprung's disease is a failure of the neural crest cells to migrate, and thus the bowel can't actually relax. It stays contracted. This results in a distal bowel obstruction and also can lead to toxic megacolon if not treated. So as far as diagnosis goes, there are two diagnostic tests that you need to know for your exam. One of these tests is the one that you'll probably order in the ED, and the other is the gold standard test, which is probably done at a later time, but both are fair game for your exam. Can you guys tell me what the first test is, the non-gold standard test that is still acceptable? Good, so this is a contrast enema. Okay, don't confuse this with the air enema with intussusception. And what you're looking for on this contrast enema is a distal transition point. Now, can you guys think of what the gold standard test is? Good, so this is a rectal suction biopsy. Basically, they just take a deep biopsy of the rectum and look for the presence or absence of these neurons. And if there's no neurons, then the diagnosis is confirmed. All right, that's all I want to cover for pediatric belly pain right now. But let's switch our focus to pediatric respiratory disease. So obviously asthma is a high yield topic for this exam, not only in the pediatric portions, but the adult portions. So I made the decision not to cover asthma on this podcast. I don't think it's the best use of your guys' time to hear me talk about it because it's a pretty straightforward diagnosis on the exam. Asthma is asthma. And then the treatment is something we've all learned probably five times by now. That being said, let's move on to some of the more specific 
pediatric airway diseases that are very easy to mix up on the exam. Let's say we have a one-year-old come in, and for the past three or four days, he's had a history of fever, runny nose, and cough, but now he's having a little trouble breathing and he's in respiratory distress. What is your most likely diagnosis here? Good, so this is bronchiolitis. Classically, this is gonna present as a prodrome with mild URI symptoms, such as fever, runny nose, cough, sore throat, etc. And then around day three or day four, all of a sudden it'll get worse. And that's when it spreads to the lower respiratory tract. And then they start presenting in respiratory distress, maybe with some wheezing on exam. And what's the most common cause of bronchiolitis? Good, it's RSV. All right, let's say a two-year-old girl comes in. She's had a fever, runny nose, and cough for the past couple days, but now has developed inspiratory strider and a bark-like cough. What is your diagnosis? Good, so this is croup. The doctor word for croup is laryngotracheobronchitis. And I would definitely know both terms because they're interchangeable both on the exam and real life. And what is the most common cause of croup? Good job, guys. This is the parainfluenza virus. Now, if you were to order an x-ray of this patient's neck, what would you see? Good. So you would see subglottic narrowing, which is classically known as the steeple sign. And on the exam, how do you treat croup? So if it's severe enough, you can give these kids a single dose of steroids, and that's probably the right answer on your exam. Also, nebulized epinephrine works as well. Let's say a two-year-old immigrant comes into the ED who has not received any vaccinations and is complaining of the rapid onset of fever, sore throat, inspiratory strider, and a muffled voice. You also note that the patient is drooling. What is your diagnosis here? So this should have been pretty straightforward. The diagnosis is epiglottitis, which is an infection caused by Haemophilus influenza type B and is common in unvaccinated children, for exam purposes at least. Uh, nowadays, I think the most common patient with epiglottitis is actually an adult um, because their vaccine has worn off. Let's say you suspected epiglottitis from the second you walked in that room, like the good med student that you are. What do you want to do next? Do you want to draw labs and give some antibiotics? Do you want to intubate them and then do that? What do you want to do? Okay, so this comes up a lot on exams. So you don't draw labs and give them antibiotics in the ED. You don't even intubate them in the ED, okay? These kids go right to the OR for an emergent intubation. The reason that you go to the OR is that these kids' airways are very unstable. Even just the most minor trauma can shut off their airway. So you wanna be in a controlled environment where a trach can be performed if necessary. And that about wraps up this week's episode. Again, if you have any suggestions or feedback or even questions, shoot me that email. Until next Sunday, keep working hard, keep studying, 
and be sure to enjoy your shift.